0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Nicholas Degan Bloom, author of The Great American Transit Disaster A Century of Austerity, Autocentric Planning, and White Flight. How are you doing today?
1: I'm well. Thank you so much, Deidre. How are you?
0: Great. Now, I wonder if you could tell the audience something about yourself and how you got started on this project.
1: Okay, doke, well, uh, I am a professor at Hunter College and I run the urban planning program, the master's in urban planning program at Hunter College. And this book, I, I think this, this of, for me, this very personal book in a way because I grew up um, in Baltimore, Maryland. I actually started riding public transit pretty early as a kind of substitute for school buses. And so in the 1980s, I was riding these old but really interesting buses that were still in service in Baltimore. And, and I had a taste for it. I, I liked it. And I enjoyed the, the community of bus riding and so forth. And I was also in Baltimore during the years when they were adding rail service uh and so forth, like a new subway line and light rail and so forth. So um, you know, these th- that kind of personal dimension kind of fascinated me. And even in my neighborhood in Baltimore, there was a, a wide boulevard and there was a little bit of track that was like left over from the streetcar era. And I, that sort of was fascinating <laughs> to me too. And you know, there's this wide boulevard that had been built for streetcar. So I, I had a lot of questions certainly in my mind that I wanted answered about why You know, a city like Baltimore and so many other cities which once had so much transit ended up with so little, right? And I wasn't satisfied with the the kind of typical explanations uh, that were out there about why there was so little transit in the United States.
0: How did you select the cities that you talk about in your book?
1: Right. So there are three types of cities uh, that are represented that I think reflect kind of the 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 fate of transit right the the first of those two cities where really there's no hope for transit in a way uh, baltimore and atlanta in the period i'm looking at really the book really focuses in the from the 1940s to the 1970s uh these were cities that were totally under private control um and so that those were two i wanted two case studies cities uh, one a uh, kind of mid-atlantic city the other southern city to give a sense of what happens when you let private companies kind of have their way with transit and it's not a great story. I mean, it's a, it's a great story. It's a disaster. uh, but it's very sad story. Uh, the second set of cities are cities where you had a relatively early public takeover of transit. This was like Chicago and Detroit. I use as the stand-ins for those cities. And you'd think it would go better where people say, Oh, well public ownership will be better. But in this case, it wasn't because there were no subsidies for the the, um, the public owners. So they basically had to try to figure out how to balance their budgets without any subsidies. And so they lost riders and so forth. They just cut service. And so it didn't really end up being that different in the end from privately run, unsubsidized systems. And then the last two cities are um, San Francisco and Boston. And these were cities I chose because they had both public ownership very early and they had subsidies very early. Uh, And those subsidies from the government, that is from taxation, will allow these cities to preserve like more of their transit. You know, if you go to uh, Boston or San Francisco, you're like, why? There's still like streetcars, you know, like, why is that? You know, it's because they had the money to keep these things going when they were losing transit riders. Right. They built some subway extensions. You know, they've done they've kept more service on the streets. So those are those are those last two uh, case studies.
0: Tell us about the transit-dependent resident and the problems that you found from your research.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. (laughs) Well, I mean, 100 years ago, most urban dwellers were transit-dependent. And the great news for them was that in that period, being transit-dependent wasn't a stigma. You know, everyone rode transit when they needed to go, you know, more than somewhere that their feet could take them. And in fact, in many cases, transit was somewhat prestigious. Riding a streetcar out to, you know, out of the tenements into a suburban area to the streetcar suburbs. This is great. You know, like this was an opportunity to improve the conditions for your family and so forth. So the transit dependent 100 years ago was basically like most urban dwellers because most people didn't own cars. What happens though is as cars proliferated, as low density suburbs were created, um, those who had the money uh, began to buy cars and the transit dependent were those who basically didn't have the money either for to buy a car. They were discriminated against in the housing market in the suburbs, could not get out to the suburbs. Um, and they became dependent. This is where being transit dependent begins to have a negative stigma, which is that they became dependent on systems that weren't very reliable. So as the systems disinvested, they didn't have the money, whether they were under private or public ownership in most of the United States, but mostly private until the 1970s. Being a transit rider meant that you know it took you longer to get where you need to go, you couldn't get to the better jobs, you couldn't get to the better housing in some cases. And so that, you know, that basically meant a lower quality of life for many people because of their transit dependencies. And there develops also a very clear uh, racial dimension in many American cities. Uh, probably most, I would say at this point, where white people, as they had with public housing or as they had with center city housing, they, there was a white flight. They left behind the systems, which they had once widely used, and the, basically African-American riders uh, became the majority ridership or users of this what was becoming a public service. And what you see in so many American cities in the 50s and 60s, before the rise of Black political power, were white mayors who were very hostile to the transit dependent, quite frankly. They didn't care what kind of quality of life they had, um, and they basically allowed for tremendous cuts to service. And the result was, again, um, being transit dependent meant it took you far longer to get to your work or pick up your kids or whatever you had to do because you were dependent on transit. And the other side of transit dependency in the U.S. even to today is, you know, it, it really means, um, you know, very often waiting in places that are less comfortable Uh, either in terms of like climate, like most bus stops are not covered in the United States, Um, could be public safety, like late at night. So the transit dependent rider faces um, a lot of challenges, both, you know, back when in the post-war period, but also today.
0: Now, you talk about San Francisco and the bus system. It was developed in the 30s. Tell us more about
1: that. Right. So almost every American city, even as early as the 20s, but certainly the 30s, cities like San Francisco and elsewhere, they began um, pushing for replacing streetcars with buses. And, you know, the buses were seen to have many, many advantages over streetcars. I'm not saying they do, but, you know, you could change the route or they could run faster if the traffic wasn't there. Um, and then a city like uh, San Francisco also, like Atlanta and a number of other cities, invested in electric buses, electric what are called electric trolley buses. And so buses uh, really had a, a, a sort of flowering, if you will, in the 30s, 40s, into the 50s, very, a pretty high quality service. The difference in San Francisco from so many other American cities is that because they had this tax support, Their their increasingly bus and electric trolley bus system in the post-war years, in the 40s and 50s, 60s, they kept it intact and they kept the service going. And so buses had a better reputation, you know, because you could depend on them to show up more and so forth. They even ran them when they didn't have enough riders very often, you know, during some times just to make sure there was some service there. And I think what that shows you is that buses can be great. You know, there can be terrific bus systems, but they have to be, you know, frequent, uh, reliable, you know, nice quality buses kept up and things like that. And then you can really like San Francisco today, most people in San Francisco who use transit even to today, they ride um buses or electric trolley buses that's what they use they still have a couple streetcar lines that become the muni metro underground but most mostly it's buses and you know that's typical in the united states but what's not typical in san francisco is that they maintain so much more service where you don't really need you know i think it's that idea of like how much service do you need so people don't need a car
0: now you tell us that the nation started building you know everything around transit yeah. and yet they st- they destroyed
1: it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what did you find about this auto centric policy? Right. So, because we were a transit nation, let's say in 1900, and as I mentioned, almost everyone rode transit and so forth, you know, the stores located around transit, uh, factories around transit. I mean, you know, even to say like Chicago, right? I mean, most people didn't even go downtown who rode transit because there were just so many employment opportunities and shopping out along the trolley lines and so forth and so basically if you go to a city like chicago you'll or like west philadelphia or you go to parts of boston or new york you'll still see you know neighborhoods that are intact right and built around transit to take advantage of customers, right? Or workers, right? And so forth. Riders, right? So there's stores right near the stations and so forth. So in places where some, you know, aspect of the fixed, usually fixed rail, but it can be buses too, where like transit was maintained, you'll see this kind of infrastructure of like uh, of the city built around them. In places where that, that's those systems were eliminated, right? Or reduced, um that's where you see you know the stores would close you saw a lot of disinvestment in those areas i think about again you know um you know parts of baltimore where streetcars were ripped out which a lot of these areas had had like very robust um, commercial districts along the streetcar lines once you start ripping out the streetcar lines i mean you know there's a lot of customers gone and remember the the commercial that builds up around like transit, they don't have any parking or very little, right? So they can't really compete for the new car oriented shopper very well, you know, some street parking, but it's very difficult to compete. And so those areas really go downhill. The other factor though, is that transit, like all other urban institutions, began to suffer from the widespread disinvestment uh, accelerated by redlining of the neighborhood. So you know remember that the places where in very almost every american city where you had the most kind of div- densely developed transit infrastructure and also densely populated neighborhoods primarily african american near to central cities those were the areas which suffered most from the disinvestment related to redlining mortgage redlining and disinvestment and so it's not an accident right that transit ridership slips in these areas, also job discrimination for African-American residents. It's not an accident that these are areas, you know, begin to lose riders. Uh, They lose kind of the transit infrastructure over time because the neighborhoods themselves are collapsing. And we really see that like in the 60s, 70s and 80s, like the riots in Baltimore and so forth.
0: Now, the first city you talked about was Baltimore. Tell us about what were the city planners doing at the very
1: first beginning? Right. So, when city planning emerges as a profession in the early 20th century, it was not, in generally speaking, it was not very pro transit. It really aligned itself. City planning, really until the 1960s, from basically the 20s to the 60s, aligned itself with everything modern, right? And what was modern, right? Modern was the automobile. Right, and so what city planners did when they looked at a city like Baltimore, they said, "Yeah, you know, it's not going to work, you know, <laughs> for the car, right? This densely developed streetcar walking city, right, where all these streetcars are like, you know, going into the central business district, and that's slowing up cars, right? And so what they basically to begin proposing in the twenties and into the thirties and forties is." They want the city planners in Baltimore and every other city. They want the streetcars out because in their view, they slow down automobiles. They want one-way streets that will speed up traffic. They want boulevards. They want highways, right? They want parking for cars in the downtowns, right? And when you begin layering all these things on, they basically, you know, through what we call urban renewal, you know, these basically destructive policies, especially a city like Baltimore, which bulldoze the center of the city for what's called Charles Center, Um, They basically do. They reshape the city so that a suburbanite can drive their car in and park. And, you know, it's no big deal. They don't need the transit anymore because the transit would be slower. It would be more socially mixed to ride transit. Um, So city planners basically from the 20s to the 60s in almost every American city overtly, publicly were part of a kind of political consensus among what was then still a white political leadership. Uh, that city centers should be remade for the car. In fact, all of cities should be remade for the car. So in the center city, you put in parking and you have the highways come in and so forth. In the areas on the periphery, right, you do zoning, Right, so you zone every like in Baltimore, the new areas, of the city that were added, you zone it very low density, so that you know nobody's going to put much. You know, the private company's not going to send transit out there because they can't get any riders, right? And people who live out there, they're going to buy cars, right? And they'll be able to use those cars because there'll be boulevards and highways and so forth. So the whole kind of push of city planning in this era was very car-centric. And while we've known that to a certain extent, I think this is one of the first books that kind of lays out how city planning really helped undermine transit. We always talked about how they help build highways, right, by demolishing primarily African-American neighborhoods uh, to build these highways. But at the same time, they also have a lot of policies that directly undermined the ability of first private transit companies to operate well, but also eventually public transit as well.
0: Let's look at Chicago and tell us about the streetcars in Chicago and the Chicago riot of 1919.
1: Yeah, so basically in a a city like Chicago, uh, the streetcar system was once very extensive and the maps are pretty amazing about that. And Chicago, like many northern cities, became a place where there was an African-American migration northward. And uh, this African-American population was highly restricted uh, to particularly in this period, um, in the World War I era, uh, to the south side, a few south side neighborhoods, uh, what eventually became known as the Black Belt. And yet at the same time, African-American workers were traveling around the city, people were going for recreation to other places in the city. And so some of the only truly integrated environments um, of the uh, of the city were the streetcars, and so it's not an accident. Both in a city like Chicago, but then Detroit in World War II, uh, that you have basically whites, in particular, attacking uh, African Americans on these uh, streetcars as part of trying to enforce the color line, right? The the kind of restriction, and um, you know the north as opposed to the south in the south in this period you had basically the system of jim crow which on vehicles right separated white and black but that was not the case in the north and the response to it was not greater tolerance on the part of whites it was to go buy cars of course in the 1920s and 30s uh, to move further out but also to attack african-americans who were riding uh, these uh, these street cars
0: Boston. Tell us about the Henry Whitney's West End Company. What happened there?
1: Yeah, so the West End Company was part of basically a, a tremendous uh, real estate uh, scheme, if you will, right? which were most transit companies, to basically use the streetcar lines to extend to extend the streetcar lines out, and then thus open up new land for development, and that's what Whitney was very good at. The problem was that as the ridership picked up, as the number of streetcars picked up, uh, this created tremendous congestion in the center of Boston. And ultimately, Whitney will be displaced by a kind of public-private partnership uh, that will build uh, what's called the Boston Elevated, which was the you know essentially the first subway in the United States. Ah, uh, to basically, you know, put together the capital and so forth to take us to turn a streetcar line right into a quasi-subway system downtown. Right, those streetcars, uh, even today on the Green Line, they they're at surface out in Brookline, the parts that the West End Company and Henry Whitney did right. But as they get into the city, they dive underground and become a subway. And so there you have an example where. It's one reason Boston has more transit today is that uh, even in the 19th century, it was clear, the late 19th century and early 20th century was clear that private capital alone could not basically build a kind of transit system that would effectively serve Uh, the population. And so the public got involved in helping to finance the creation of a better system, which was the subway. And that early entry it's like in New York is the same. San Francisco has examples of this tunnels. Anywhere you had to like do this kind of tunneling and and more costly infrastructure, that's where you had to have the public involved. And because the public was involved, that's really important later on where they say, okay, well, the public's already involved in financing this. Why does the public just run it? Whereas a city like Chicago, where it was all privately financed, honestly, the, it's amazing that until about 1970 or so forth, that transit paid its way under, uh, essentially, uh, under private ownership, and then under public ownership beginning in the 1940s, it essentially was sort of paying its way. Um, and so there was this idea, well, you know, transit, you know, should be self-financing. But in cities like Boston, New York, and San Francisco, that pretty much played out early because of geography.
0: Now you talk about the tax dollar and white flight. Tell the audience
1: more about what was going on here throughout the different places. The tax dollars and white flight. Yeah. So, I mean, transit, with almost almost without exception, is not able to. Um, <laughs> Well, let me let me back up and say, well, there's there's I think one issue you're you're sort of pointing to there is that transit in most of the United States into the 1960s was actually taxed to help support city budgets, which is incredible to think about today. But they had these things called park taxes and so forth, and so many city governments, including Baltimore and many others, they basically extracted money from private companies. Uh, to help cover the development of parks or, you know, road maintenance and things like that, even though these private companies were essentially running an unsubsidized public service. Um, And, you know, that helps destroy transit. It was one of the factors that helps destroy transit because these private companies go, well, you know, our revenues are just dropping like a stone in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, but you're not letting, you're still making us pay these taxes and you're not subsidizing us. So as you know, we we still have to make a modest profit on this industry. We're not, you know, not a public agency. So basically, they would cut service or raise fares to basically help cover the cost of these taxes and their other costs. So that's that's a big problem there. The other factor is that with taxes, is that because most American cities stop growing, particularly in the North where there was more transit, they're unable to annex really uh, much uh, territory around them. They end up financially strapped, uh, certainly uh, by the post-war years. And so there, as transit became this public entity, they didn't have the cash to help transit that much necessarily. Um, and so they look to, very often they look to state governments. for aid um, or a taxation structure that can basically go beyond city and suburban limits. And so that's what you end up with is a um, uh, regional like we often hear this is regional transit authority, right, something like that, right, the so and so regional transit, that's because cities are kind of broke. Right, most cities don't have a lot of money. And so there's this idea well, you know, there's suburbanites who sometimes ride transit, city riders, whatever. We'll kind of merge this, take this private company, like let's say 1970, take this private company public and buy it out. And then instead of just being a city transit agency, it will be a regional. Transit agency with a basically the state creates an authority usually to manage it, and it thus doing it has sometimes they have some kind of basic taxing power, they or they collect a certain part of a gas tax or whatever it is to help support uh, transit. But I should say it's not a lot, and it's really not enough in any American city to cover the cost of creating a high quality transit network.
0: Now, Atlanta, there's a whole yeah. different story there. Tell <laughs> us about. Ashburton in the changing population.
1: So what's going on in, in cities like Atlanta is, I mean, I I see Atlanta as more sort of similar, I guess, than different in a way, but in, in a city like Atlanta, you had a private company uh, which was relatively successful, was considered relatively successful uh, for a long time. And, it also loses, but unfortunately in the 19th, late 1940s and into the 50s, it begins losing a lot of, frankly, it's white population, but in the close in African-American neighborhoods, they still had significant populations of riders. And unfortunately for them, they just didn't have the money to make it work. So they took what was essentially a high quality, uh, what was electric trolley bus system and replaced it in the 1950s and 60s uh, with uh, basically a, a diesel uh, bus system and riders in neighborhoods close in uh, basically did not uh, enjoy the kind of quality of service. These are African-American riders who had, uh, th- th- they didn't enjoy the kind of quality of service that had been on offer, you know, 20, 30 years before. And then to make matters worse, the white elite in Atlanta Uh, Basically, many neighborhoods were subject to urban renewal, that is, clearance and other policies for highways, downtown redevelopment, and so forth. And so that further destabilized the neighborhoods that had the most riders. When finally Atlanta decides to build transit, uh, what they do then is they focus on high-speed rapid transit to really, that really focused on the north side, more affluent white communities. So through these means, they basically disinvested in so many close in neighborhoods.
0: You had a story of the colored Jitney bus. What happened to that bus?
1: Yeah. So the the Jitney buses were basically run out of business. Um, They were run out of business by um, the essentially private Company that ran transit in Atlanta, and basically the Black jitney services were an opportunity to offer in the particularly in the 1920s offer quality transit service that was not segregated for Black riders. In the sense, by law, they were basically able to offer their their own communities uh, transportation, and they were driven out. As in almost every, in, there was a racial component. I think in Atlanta that was different than Jitney service in many other cities. But Jitney service across the board in the 1920s, the private companies uh, that basically ran transit didn't want to have the competition uh, with, basically a a Jitney service was, you know, a kind of like taxi service, right? Um, That running alongside, let's say a streetcar line. And so they didn't want that service. And in Atlanta, it's particularly tragic uh, because there were these small companies that were basically developing Uh, that primarily serve African-American neighborhoods, and basically allowed for African-American residents to avoid the kind of humiliating situation of riding on Jim Crow transit in this period. Uh, But those were driven out of business.
0: Detroit. Yes. Can we find some really interesting um, examples of how population decline and the financial crisis impacted the people in Detroit with transit? (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the whole narrative, I mean, it's, a right. I mean, as certainly I think the, the economic collapse of Detroit cannot be separated from the transit collapse of Detroit. Right. I mean, so many people who use transit use it for employment. So as the factories abandoned a city like Detroit, uh, they also, um, They robbed the transit company, which was publicly owned. They robbed the transit company of riders. So as employment goes down, so do riders. The other thing is that the downtown also of Detroit uh, went into steep decline in the auto age. And that meant fewer people were riding transit into the center of the city, not just to factories outside. And so sort of the, the collapse of the city's economy brought down transit as well. I think there were opportunities uh, in Detroit, multiple opportunities to build higher quality transit, um, but voters uh, rejected them as early as the 1920s and 30s that could have made it basically made transit more competitive with the automobile. I do think Detroit stands out in a way, though, because, of course, it was the motor city. People had very high levels of car ownership very early. And, you know, the transit company began adjusting to that and they almost did, you know, I mean, that's maybe the interesting part is they're very innovative. They came up with these small buses, small gas buses they were using. And those were uh, very um, popular, at least for a time in the 1930s. So that was, that was innovative. They came up with express streetcar service. So there were a lot of like, I would say missed opportunities for transit, but the problem in Detroit was that the public company had no subsidies. They had to pay taxes. And as a result, um, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, almost the entire system was stripped of quality. That is, there were good quality streetcar lines because Detroit's really well-made potentially for transit, um, but those streetcar lines were ripped out, replaced with lower quality bus service.
0: Now, San Francisco, Would you say that San Francisco was a
1: success story in terms of public transit? Well, I'm not sure it was a global success, (laughs) like, not by maybe by global standards, but I do have it in there because, you know, they kept more of the quality transit over time. You know, they kept more of their streetcar lines, they kept more of their bus lines, more of their electric trolley bus lines. And thus, they, they, they kept their fares lower, they kept more ridership. Uh, more density of ridership. These were all really good for transit. Um, and so definitely, if you look in like the late 60s into the 70s, San Francisco had definitely the, I think the highest per capita ridership of transit aside from New York um, in this period It was very high. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the other factors that helped San Francisco, though, had a lot to do with the city itself. Uh, kind of the broader qualities of the city. That is, they canceled a bunch of highways, so that helped transit. They didn't build as many highways as they planned, so that kept transit competitive, right? They also, um, uh, as I mentioned, they subsidized transit to maintain a service over time. The city itself is encircled by water. It's small, it's compact, it's dense. They didn't have the big kind of sprawling suburban type environment within the city limits that so many other cities had. So, you know, density, also, you know, it was a financial center, a very successful financial center. And so you had these kind of, you know, these big office buildings built, um, which were difficult to serve with automobiles. So there's like definitely a combination of factors that lead to San Francisco being more successful. On the one hand, you know they invested in transit, maintained more of it. And on the other, the kind of planning context, the situation of San Francisco uh, was, was favorable to transit. They also got a lot of immigrants post 65, which is very important uh, for transit in cities like um, San Francisco, LA, uh, New York, and Chicago, Boston too.
0: Now, what is the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book?
1: Uh, well, it's pretty straightforward, which is that, you know, tr- the, the, the quality of transit that you have in society has everything to do with the commitment, right, of leaders uh, to basically maintain, and, and voters, right, to maintain that system, and particularly in very difficult times. Transit's not a, it's not, it's very straightforward about what makes a transit system work. And we need to focus on those things. And those things are sufficient subsidies uh, to basically make uh, transit. Uh, a reliable service, right? And quality service. That's very important. Policies that do not make everything about making cars go faster or easier. You, can, you have to have pro-transit planning policies. And frankly, I think you also need to encourage a multicultural society, uh, one where basically uh, people of different backgrounds and so forth can expect a quality service, uh, regardless of race or ethnicity, and I think that you know how you get to those things are through the political process. And transit in this country now is fundamentally a political uh, element, right? That is, it's it's budgets and it's it's political, it's planning context, and everything has a lot to do with the um, the politics behind it. So people should. The, the, the choices that we make now will have enormous impact. That's like, that's my main message is the choices people made 100 years ago about transit influence the transit we have or don't have today. The, tra- the decisions that we make as voters and politicians or planners, whatever it is, those will influence how much transit is here 10, 20, 30 years from now. And so, you know, it's nice to think that there's some plot against transit by the car companies or other things like that. But the truth is, we also have to make better decisions Um, about what kind of works, how we'll invest in transit.
0: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you're working on?
1: Well, I'm thinking about doing some. I I haven't, I haven't, this is, you know, this has just recently come out, so I haven't decided yet. But I am interested very much in how um, New York in particular uh, has tried to um, kind of build better New Yorkers through various kinds of institutions, whether it's transit, education, and so forth.
0: Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank and you, Deidre.
1: I really appreciate this.
0: And we've been talking with the author of The Great American Transit Disaster A Century of Austerity, Autocentric Planning, and White Flight. Thank you.